Good morning, Horizon. You've slept in, you have plenty of energy. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. My name is Beth Guckenberger. If I haven't met you yet, uh, I've been coming to this church and sharing my heart and my stories for almost 20 years. If I have met you, uh, it's good to see you again. Merry Christmas. This, uh, before I jump into our message today, I just have a couple of announcements I want to make. The first one is um, this church is certainly marked by its generosity, and there's been opportunity uh, for the last couple of weeks to participate in the giving tree out there. And uh, the ministry that I give leadership to, Back to Back Ministries, has been, is one of the recipients of the giving tree. And so I just wanted to take a minute and say thank you for that. And it's just never too late to be thinking about um, the, the, the most vulnerable people we have in this city. Um, so thank you for the ways you've done that. The second is just a little save the date. On February 3rd, I'm going to be doing a half-day workshop here in the church just for women on relationships. So I just wanted to get that on your radar. Maybe you put that on your calendar. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about that, there'll be more details coming. And the last announcement I have is around um, this church that travels all around the world on mission trips. And one of the places that, that they travel on a mission trip is associated with the ministry that I lead, um, and it's in Cancun. And this President's Day weekend, there's a family trip, and there are four spots still available. So if you haven't done your Christmas shopping yet and you want to wrap up something real special under the tree, you can tell your family that you're going to be joining the mission trip to Cancun um, over President's Day weekend. If you have more questions about that opportunity or, or want to inquire about those spots, see John Kirby. He'd be happy to talk to you all about it. Well, here we are in the most wonderful time of the year, right? Except that Christmas is like a magnifier in some ways. Whatever it is, however you're coming into this season, this, this time of year makes everything a little bit more. So if you're like, some of you are super excited, it's getting colder, you can't wait till the first snowfall, and some of you are like, it's dark by 4.30, and I'm, I feel more anxious and depressed this time of year. And some of you are so excited about all the... I don't know, all the family you're going to be hosting and the events that you have coming up. And some of you feel like it's just like a little bit all too much. Or maybe you've lost someone since last year and their absence feels really acute this time of year. Maybe you've done all your shopping. You did it in July or you did it on Black Friday and you're feeling pretty good about yourself. And there's some of you who haven't even started yet. You know who you are. And so no matter how it is that you're entering into this season, it can already feel a little bit exhausting. And I know that you have been talking in this season, in this series about button pushing, about the emotions and reactions and relationships that are impacted. Um, and I just want to share a little bit about how and why this got, became interesting to me a number of years ago. So, um, so I work for Back to Back Ministries. We work with orphaned and vulnerable children, and we do it all around the world and right here in Cincinnati. And we had been doing it, um, I mean, a long time, like 10 or 15 years, when uh, we ha I had this one dinner conversation that set me on a path to try to understand what's the relationship between my brain and my emotions, and my emotions and my mouth, and my mouth and, my, and the people that I interact with. What's all that? How's that all tie together? We, in 2001, we started a program for orphans around the world to take them through their bachelor's degree. We thought if we could get vulnerable children all the way through a college education in countries where 
10% of their country is college educated, we would have the opportunity to break generational poverty and it was gonna be awesome. So we started 2001. But it takes a while to actually see fruit because first, the countries that we were serving only had mandatory education through the eighth grade. So first we have to take everyone from eighth grade to high school graduation and then high school graduation into college entrance and then college entrance into degree decisions and degree decisions into degree completion. And so even though we started in 2001, the story I'm gonna tell you was eight years later because that's when we started to actually have some of our initial graduates. And one young man, one of our first program graduates, graduated the degree in computer systems engineering and he came to our house for dinner one night and he'd been at his new job maybe six weeks and he's like, Hey, I just, I'm going to let you know, like, I'm going to quit my new job. And my husband's like, what do you mean you're going to quit your new job? You've worked so hard to get there. What, 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 why would you do that? And he goes, oh, there's this guy. He drives me crazy. He walks around behind me all the time. He's always trying to tell me what to do. And Todd was like, is he your boss? And the kid was like, yes, he's so <laughs> And we looked over at each other and we realized he had all the right backpacks and all the right shoes and all the right classes and all the right tutoring. He had all the right braces. He had all the right haircuts. He had all the right things. But we had never along his journey adequately addressed his, his emotional anemia, his trauma. And so he did not know how to manage authority or men or keep a job. And I was afraid he wasn't going to be able to sustain meaningful relationships. And, and we were like, what is it about our brains and our hearts and our mouths and our relationship? What is it that we don't know yet? And the best information about pain and trauma and neglect and all of that is currently lives in academia. We have fabulous professors and researchers around the world that are embarking and commissioning studies that are short-term and long-term, and they're finding out how relationships impact our brain and how our brain impacts relationships. And, and they're publishing their findings in academic journals and they're passing along their information to the next generation of future professionals. So they're teaching future social workers and future psychologists and, and the people that are gonna go and professionalize this. And while that's really important and I'm really glad those people are doing that, that doesn't meet the need that we were having. We needed the kind of information and insight that they were gaining in those places distilled down to like an eighth grade education so that we could give them away in places around the world. And as we began to write curriculum, taking that really important content and putting it in lay people's terms, and we began to, to act on the learnings that we were finding, first among just the staff ourselves and then with the students that we were serving, we saw pretty dramatic results within the first 12 to 18 months. There were some, some results you could measure, graduation rates, dropout rates, um, you know, in-house violence. Like you could, you could actually track how tempers were cooler and resiliency was growing and some of the things that we were looking for. But there were a bunch of things that you couldn't track. We, there were just these like, these like vague sense of belonging and this, this understanding that somebody's, if I have a problem, there's somebody out there who's interested in knowing not only how to solve my problem, but on how to heal the cause of my problem. Because if I'm honest, I think that I used to believe that relational issues, button pushing moments, were things to be fixed. Or at my worst moments, people were people to be fixed instead of 
opportunities for healing. First for me, the late Dr. Karen Purvis says we can't take anyone to a place we haven't been ourselves. So the first place we went to was the mirror to figure out exactly what he was just saying. Where is it that I might be pushing other people's buttons? And instead of just reacting to how they're reacting to my button pushing, what if I tried to understand more what's going on? So one of the first things I learned, this is just like a little life hack for us today, is, and if there's any neurologists in the room, I'm gonna slightly simplify brain um, science. But in the front of our brains, we have something called the prefrontal cortex. And this is where all the good thinking happens. This is like problem solving and cause and effect and creative thinking. And this is, this is where we wanna be operating up here in our prefrontal cortex. But right here behind our ears, <clears throat> we have these little almond-shaped glands. They're called our amygdalas. And that's where fight and flight and freeze responses come from. And there's now a fourth one called fawn. That's where those live. And our amygdalas and our prefrontal cortex cannot work at the same time. And our amygdala wins every time. So if we are threatened by Uncle Carl, if we're threatened because we're actually in a, in a discussion where we're feeling disrespected, we're feeling um, intimidated, we're feeling... Uh, uh, triggered or provoked and we stop up here we stop thinking cause and effect and problem solving creative thinking and we're like amygdala 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 like if we start getting back here then what happens back here is in our fear brain we want to protect ourselves and there are five responses that we might have in the face of going getting our our fear brains activated we we, we can manipulate we can triangulate, we can be aggressive, we can be violent, or we can use control. And none of those are very fun at Christmas dinner. So let's get into what button pushing looks like. Well, what can happen in any one of us is that we can, we can have a certain appetite or set point for this kind of behavior. And I, I don't think I realized that until this became my work and where I studied. And I remember uh, we, we had, there was like a season of time where we had house parents and kids were living with what might look like foster care to us. A couple of house parents, their biological children, and then five, six, seven, maybe even eight teenagers who were going on to high school and college were living in these group homes. And my husband and I were functioning kind of like the principals of this campus. So the houses had their own rules and they managed their own discipline and they they, they did everything independently, but if there was ever like an incident or a tie that needed broken or, or something, then, that, then they would call on us. And on a Monday, we put a really difficult teenage boy in a home with these fabulous house parents. And they were like, they were the kind of house parents that like had like school time and then snack time and then homework time and then talk about our feelings about our day time and then get ready for dinner together time. And then we had dinner time and then after dinner we had game time. And then we had, I mean, it was just like, I mean, beautiful. What they were, I did this job for a while. They were way better at this job than I was. And I said, you guys are going to be perfect. This child has a really difficult background, but you're going to be amazing. And every night we were debriefing how he was acclimating to their household. And they would talk about his desire to disrupt what was happening and the way he was pushing their buttons and the other boys' buttons, but the strategies they were using to try to maintain their calm and stay out of their fair brain and keep problem solving and co-regulating with each other and all the right words. And on Friday, so that boy had been there five days, I was at my house and one of the other boys in that house came running over and knocked on my door and said, you gotta come over because the house parent has lost his cookies. Like he is a mess. 
And this man is very mild-mannered, and I was trying to picture what that would look like for him to have lost his cookies. And then I walked over there to his house, and I saw exactly what it looked like. He was out of his mind. He was yelling and screaming and swearing, and he, was, he had lost his ever-loving mind. And the wife, who probably hadn't seen her husband like that very often, kind of joined him, and she was like, it was just like a scene from a movie, and it was like almost in slow motion, and he was waving his arms. And then the boys, who were used to like game time and snack time and craft time and how do you feel about things time, were like responding or reacting to what it was that their house parents were doing, so they were going crazy. The only person that looked at peace and calm in the whole house was this crazy boy I put there on Monday. And he was like, cool as a cucumber. So I said, hey, buddy, what, what's going on here? And he said to me, finally, I can breathe. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, these people have been so nice all week, so calm, so cheerful, so lovely. I couldn't, I felt like I was suffocating. He's like, look at them now. I, I feel like I can breathe. And that night when the parents had, um, you know, calmed down some and we were having a discussion, I said, Maybe you thought that your job with him was going to be to make sure that he understood how to do his math homework and that he made sure that he learned how to eat vegetables and he got to bed on time and he brushed his teeth. I think the real work here is that you're going to have to actually change his set point. He thinks, he has, the only waters he's ever swam in is conflict and chaos. It's the only way he knows how to breathe. And so in every setting he's going to go into, he's going to try to provoke an environment which makes him feel more comfortable because this is his set point. You're actually going to have to change his set points so that he has an appetite for connection and a belonging and attachment and identity. And that that understanding that everybody that sits down at our Thanksgiving table or our Christmas table or around our boardrooms or in our neighborhood gatherings, that they all come with their own set points. And in our own ways, we're trying to recreate environments that make us feel the most comfortable. Like, I recognize this setting. This is, this is what is familiar to me. And that sometimes we have the opportunity, especially when we marry into each other's families, we have the opportunity to, to see what people's, to see what the Bible calls the sin that's crouching at their door. So Genesis chapter 4, there's this story where God is talking to Cain. Cain. Cain is the son of Adam, so like we're talking the very beginning of the world. And Cain has a brother named Abel, and Cain is the bad son. That's where we get the phrase raising Cain from. He's the, he, he, he had an anger issue. And the Bible says that the Lord said to him, sin is crouching at your door and you have two choices. You can either master it or it's going to master you. And the sin that's crouching at my door is totally different than the sin that was crouching at my husband's door or by the way, my mother-in-law's door or Uncle Carl's door, right? I mean, the sin that's crouching at our doors are like a combination of our, our experiences and our temperament and our temptations and our own weaknesses. And that little concoction sits at my door all the time and it's always knocking for me to respond. And, it, and, and depending on who we are, sometimes we respond aggressively. And when someone comes at us, we, we meet them and match them or get bigger so that they get lower. Or some of us, when, when someone's coming at us, the sin that's at my door causes me to get smaller or passive or manipulative, or aggressive, or violent, or, or triangulate, all the things that we've talked about. And, and on a really practical level, both 
we know this from good science and we know this from reading our Bibles, that there is a principle that you can use just, again, like 101 at your tables. If somebody says something to you or if you say something that is not okay, one of the tools that we use with the kids that we work with is we just ask them simply if they would like a redo. And the Bible calls that grace. There's a bunch of beautiful spiritual words about it. But sometimes, I mean, sometimes I use that in my marriage. My husband comes in hot, which probably has nothing to do with me, or it's maybe about how I parked in the garage, or maybe it's about a phone call he just got off of, or maybe it's the way one of my sons just just provoked his little amygdala to get active, or it, it doesn't matter, but something happens and he comes in at me and he says something that I didn't like the way it was said. I could either be like judgy. I could be like, you know what, you're going to be that way. I'm going to be that way more. Or I could say to him what God says to me, would you like a redo? And there are plenty of times where we learned how to do that to help raise the children that we have adopted into our family, to give them a chance to get out of their fear brain and back up in their right brain and think, if I do this, then that's going to happen. There are plenty of times when I'll say to him, hey, would you like a, like a little redo on that? Or he'll say that to me. And that is just, this, it's like this chance that like this isn't how we act with each other. We're going to, we're going to grow through this. We're going to change through this. We were in this training and we were learning about how anger in all of its forms, passive and aggressive, is actually a secondary emotion and it sits on the emotion of fear. So if somebody is angry, they're actually really just afraid. They just haven't figured out how to alleviate that fear or express that fear. And when the guy was teaching us this, he said, have any of you ever lost a child in a grocery store? And I raised my hand. I said, yep, I lost my son Josh one time in a grocery store. And he said, well, tell us a little bit about it. How did that feel? And I said, well, I'll tell you, when I found him in the produce, I did not ask him if he'd like a banana. When I found him in the produce section, I lost my mind. I was like, what are you doing? Don't you see right there? Like, I, was, I went crazy on him. I wasn't really mad at him. I was just scared. I was so scared. And so in this training, they were saying, when someone comes at you and they're angry, you, ha you have some choices, but the loving response is, be a detective. Try to figure out what the fear is that they might be having that they haven't had a chance to say yet and do everything you can to minister to them in their fear instead of react to them in their anger. And so we heard that training like, I don't know, on a Thursday. About a week later, my husband and I were building a house and um, after dinner, he got out the plans and we have a large family and so it's a complicated, it was a complicated house and we had a guest room because we have a lot of missionaries that stay with us in, for longer periods of time. And he, he was just unrolling the plans and he was pointing to the guest area and he goes, I think that we should put a bathroom in there for those guests. And I said, we don't need a bathroom in there. Are there do you know how many bathrooms this house has? If they want to go to the bathroom, they can go there, they can go there, they can go there. Like, we don't need another bathroom in that guest room. And he was like pushing back, like, no, I think that'll be, I think they'd probably appreciate the privacy and I think that's a really nice feature and this is the time to think about it. And he's being all logical. And something in me went to my amygdala. And I was no longer talking about a bathroom. I was now talking about his mother. You know how fights go like that? Like you start out talking about one thing and then it kind of escalates, you know. And as I'm going up and high and he's looking at me, he was remembering his training, our training from the week before. And he goes, okay, I can, I can see you're angry. And I know that means you're afraid. I just can't figure out for the life of me, what, what, what are you afraid of a bathroom for? Like, what, how could this possibly make you afraid? And in that moment, I wasn't like, oh, good idea. Let's just like dive into the, my, my button pushes and figure out what you did. Like, 
you, you had adrenaline going on, right? You got like, I have big feelings. I wanted to go back and talk about it some more. But I was like, okay, okay, you're right, you're right. And I just took a moment to search my own heart. Because our Bible tells us from the overflow of our, of our heart, my mouth speaks. So what was going on in my heart that was making my mouth sound like that? And I, I knew it was fear, and I was trying to figure out what was I afraid of. And the Bible also talks to us about our minds. It says things like take every thought captive and renew our thinking, right? It talks about uh, set our minds on things above. Lots of verses about our minds because our minds help influence or inform our hearts, and our hearts then influence our mouth. So I got to get my brain in the right place if, I'm gonna, if I want my mouth to align with my, my belief system, my desire to treat the people I love in the best way I can. So I, I needed to go, like, hey, what, think, 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 what am I afraid of? So it took me a minute or two, and then I just said, okay, I'm afraid we, we can't afford that bathroom. And he was like, that's what this is about. And he gets the spreadsheets out and he shows me all the numbers. And I was like, okay, great. I'd like a double sink in there and some brush nickel, please. <laughs> because once I realized what my fear was and that fear was relieved, then the anger dissipated and now we have an honest exchange. And so when Chad was telling me a little bit about this series, I was thinking about that story and about that truth about our brains and our mouths and our hearts. And I was thinking if... If we could all go into the Christmas season curious about what makes Uncle Carl so upset about Bigfoot or makes our mother-in-law so whatever or our child so whatever or our spouse or ourselves, if I could be a detective and say, I wonder what opportunity I have to minister to the people in my life, to not react to their reactions, but to, to make sure that my heart is settled. The Bible will talk about in the book of Isaiah there's a story where God's teaching Moses about the idea of a tabernacle and the idea of a place where God can live and they could be with him before, before the New Testament came and we had the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he says to Moses in Isaiah 25, if you'll just build me a tabernacle, you'll just make me a space, I will come and sit in it. I will be with you. I am Emmanuel and I will come and be with you. And I think like when I get in those tables or conversations or a season like this where it feels like everything is heightened, the, the life hack, the spiritual choice I have is to keep making room for God, making room for him in my decisions, making room for him in my thoughts, making room for him in my conversations, making room for him in the middle of conflict, like just stopping whatever it is I'm doing that I can feel myself getting triggered by and saying, Lord, I'm making room for you. Will you come and be in my space? And I promise you, God's not looking down like, I'm not going there again. Are you kidding? I've already been there 10 times. You didn't listen the first time. I'm not doing it again. That's not how God sounds. That might be how someone sounded once in your life. And so you're attributing God's voice to that. Well, that's not how God sounds. He's supernatural. He's not human. He doesn't think the way that we think. He's not thinking to himself, well, that is a big old knot. I don't know how to untie. I'm not going there. That's, that's complicated. There is no story we have that he won't come and bring his peace. He says in John chapter 14 that his peace he wants to give us. He leaves it with us. And it's not the way the world gives peace. He doesn't function the way we do. He, he doesn't want our hearts to be troubled. And he doesn't want us to be afraid because he knows when we're afraid, we're gonna, the things that come out of our mouth are going to separate or disconnect us from people instead of draw us together and connect. And it's through relationships. 
probably the two best, if I only have one little elevator to talk to people about our brains and button pushing and all of that, I tell them that unfortunately some of the patterns of our brains were determined before we even understood what was happening. In those earliest, most fundamental and formative years of our childhood, our brains get formed. And some of those patterns that cause sins to be crouching at our door happen because of choices other people made for us. But our brains were made to heal. They're elastic. And two of the ways that science tells us that brains can heal are through being listened to. The full attention of an attuned listener heals our brain and being played with. And when we're listened to and we're played with, all the right things start happening to our brain, serotonin and, and dopamine and all the things we want to have happen in our brain, and we heal. So if you're going into Christmas season and you're thinking, I have a child coming home and I don't, I don't know where to start with them, or we're going to be with my brother-in-law and I, five minutes is five minutes too many, or, or whatever your thing is. You got a prodigal, I don't, I don't know, you got a neighbor, you got to speak. Whatever your thing is, if you're like, I literally don't know what to do, Listen to them and play. And you will be a co-contributor to the healing of their heart and mind. And you'll, because, because hurts happen in relationship, healing is relationship dependent. This is how this happens. The more, instead of like just trying to skate through the holiday season and not go too deep or not go there or not go get in it, it's actually the opposite. Let's go there. Let's get in it. Let's exchange, let's connect. That's where attachment happens. That's where the good stuff starts to happen. But God is not afraid of any of the stories we bring him in this season. I wanna finish with just a little reminder of what it is that we're celebrating. And I'm not trying to mess up our Christmas season, but let me just tell you this story. Um, there's a biblical character in the first chapter of Luke and her name is Elizabeth. And she happens to be Mary, the mother of Jesus' cousin. And I don't know, most of my cousins are my, my age, so maybe when you read that in your Bible, you think that these two women are the same age. But these women were not the same age. Elizabeth, we think, we know from our Bibles, was past the age of childbearing. So most theologians put her around 60. She could be really anywhere from 50 to 80, you know, but like she was past the age of childbearing. I was going to have you raise your hand if you're past the age of childbearing so we just know what we're looking at, but don't worry, we're not doing that today in church. But just imagine a woman past the age of childbirth. That's Elizabeth. She was married to a man named Zachariah who was a priest, and those priests had priestly duty one month of the year, and we can read what his division of priestly duty was in our Bibles, and their division had a duty in June. So shortly after their priestly duty, Elizabeth becomes pregnant with a biblical character named John the Baptist. And Zechariah um, was told that this was going to happen, and he had a hard time believing it because they'd been infertile their whole life. And because they were old, and because of his doubt, he was made mute by that angel, and he couldn't talk. And Elizabeth was overwhelmed by her whole story. I mean, can you imagine any of you who are 60 years old just suddenly finding out after a lifetime of not bearing babies that you were pregnant? And the Bible says she went into seclusion for five months. We don't really know why. It could have been it just like hurt to be pregnant at 60 years old and she wanted to stay in bed. It could be that she was not interested in having other people in her community weigh in on her pregnancy or ask her why her husband wasn't talking anymore. It could be she was afraid of the political environment at that time. We don't really know, but she went into seclusion. On the fifth month of seclusion, 
her cousin, Mary, the mother of Jesus, which most people put at 12, 13, maybe 14 years old. So this is a young girl. She gets visited by an angel and gets told that she's now carrying immaculately the Savior of the world. And one of the first things that she does when she finds out she's having a baby is she runs to the house of her cousin who's in a whole other town. So we got to ask ourselves, what did that cousin do that was so emotionally safe over Mary's lifetime that this is where she ran? She must have been a very good listener when Mary was like six and eight and ten, telling her things that might not have seemed like a big deal to an adult because they're the problems of a six or eight or ten-year-old which we've got to listen to our children when they tell us the big things to them when they're little because later they get big and their big things are big and they need to know that they can come to us. And Mary and Elizabeth meet each other when Mary was freshly conceived and now Elizabeth is six months pregnant and John the Baptist in Elizabeth's belly jumps up in response. Elizabeth's filled with the Holy Spirit, says, you are having the Savior of the world. And Mary spouts out what we read in our Bible as Mary's song. John the Baptist is born, and now they're separated, and Mary spent three months in the presence of this older woman. I just want you to picture in your mind what a comfort and mentor that Elizabeth must have been, that the Savior of the world decided his mom needed to spend three months in her presence as soon as he gave her the biggest news she's ever going to hear, which is like you're having a baby. She must have been a very special woman. She delivered a baby in March. John the Baptist, who was conceived in July, would have been born about March. She was, he then went on to be raised by his parents who were godly people who stood for faith in the midst of a system that was corrupt and was making money and using power to get their own way. It was a really hard system. John the Baptist went on to be a man of faith and who would prepare people for the king that was to, that was to be our savior. Then Mary, if she carried her baby full term, if, if she was freshly conceived six months after Elizabeth was freshly conceived. That means Jesus was conceived in this month we're in right now. Hanukkah, during the Festival of Lights. The one who called himself the light of the world was conceived right now in this time. Six months, or not, I'm sorry, nine months after this time means he would have been born at the end of the summer. He would have been born sometime in September during the end of the harvest season or what the Jewish faith calls Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the one time a year that shepherds were allowed into the fields with their animals. Normally, they're not allowed in the fields with their animals. where They would be eating the crops, but this time of year, they're allowed in those fields because they can eat whatever didn't get harvested, and then they leave like behind a little fertilizer to deposit the ground for the growing season to come. And so it was there in those fields the shepherds had their animals when the angels came to announce the birth of Jesus. And Mary's, she's got nowhere to stay. There's no room in the end for her. Nobody wanted her in their home. David, uh, Joseph was from the family of David. This is the city of David. Nobody wanted, nobody wanted them. She had to stay where the animals stay. Where do the animals stay? If you have a nativity set in your house that's like pine with like fresh hay and like a plaid blanket, throw that thing away. That's not where Jesus was born. Shepherds did then what they do now. They, they, they keep their animals in caves where nature already provides three, three of the walls and all they have to do is light a fire in the entrance. And the animals stay inside. And I, I just want you to use your imagination for a minute. What do we think the floor of that, sh that shepherd's cave would have been looking like? Nobody's mucking out a cave, right? It would have been full of the dung 
of those animals night after night, season after season, it would have been disgusting. And if you've ever cleaned out your fireplace or your grill and you've gotten soot on your hands and you know how hard it is to wash off, those walls would have been thick with the soot of a thousand shepherd's fires. And Jesus, the light of the world, decided to be born in the nastiest place he could possibly find because he was sending a message to them that day and still to us today in 2023. There is no place I won't go. There's no story. There is no button pushing. There is no trauma. There is no darkness. There is nothing too messy for me that I will not be God with you. You make space for me. I will come. I will sit with you in the middle of any relationship. It doesn't matter how broken it is. And if we can hold on to that hope, it'll alleviate our fears. It'll keep us out of our amygdalas. It'll put us back up here in our prefrontal cortex where we've set our minds on things above, where we've decided to renew our thinking, where we've taken thoughts we shouldn't have captive. And there is where we can develop the kind of relationships that make a season like this as special as they can be. I'm going to close this in prayer, but I pray that over this holiday season, you find yourself just mindful of the overflow of your mouth and what it's telling you about your heart. And you're curious about your heart, where it got the information from your head. And you're asking yourself in your head, what can I do in this moment to make sure my set point is healthy and I'm setting that healthy environment for everyone in my community? Let's pray. Jesus, I just am grateful. I'm grateful that you made the science. I'm grateful that we can learn and grow. I'm grateful that we can keep sin crouched behind our doors. We don't have to open it. We can trust and know that you'll be there for us, that you'll give us strength and wisdom and courage and gentleness and patience and self-control and love and joy and a bunch of other things that we don't have naturally. Give us what we need so that we can be present and kind and safe and a reflection of who it is that you have made us to be. So Lord, I pray with the authority that you give me for an anointing on this community that at their tables and among their families in the next couple of weeks, they would be a people that look like they're curious about the power that you wanna bring into their lives. And I pray these things in your name, amen.